0: I'm Nikandro Yanachi, producer of We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. As you know, the National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Starting last week and continuing through the new year, We're featuring some of the best programs held this fall at the Constitution Center, across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. This week, Jeff welcomes writers and commentators from across the political spectrum to discuss President Obama's constitutional legacy. You'll hear from Jonathan Chait of New York Magazine, Michael Days of the Philadelphia Daily News, David French and Ramesh Panuru of National Review, and Michael Gerhard, Scholar-in-Residence at the Constitution Center. Here's Jeff to get us started.
1: Oh, you can sit. please. Welcome. Welcome. Everyone, we're so glad to have you. So we are here to discuss President Obama's uh, political legacy and his constitutional legacy. And in a sense, those two uh, questions are connected because, you might believe that President Obama has a significant constitutional legacy, but that it was implemented in a way, for example, through executive orders, that make it easier for uh, the president-elect to undo, and that therefore that will affect uh, how he's perceived by history. So we're gonna talk about both questions, the policy and the constitutional. But we're gonna start just with the policy question, uh, and we have two authors of books on the question of President Obama's legacy. So John Chait, you have written uh, Audacity, uh, tell us uh, as concisely, but uh, fully as you can, why you believe that Barack Obama defied his critics and created a legacy that will prevail. Um, when I went back to write this
2: book, I had the sense, having written about it, that President Obama had done a great deal, but only in writing it did it really occur to me and in, in, in drive home how much he had actually accomplished in the field of economic policy, all the policies that went into rescuing the economy, healthcare, education reform, um, and and, and a series of climate change reforms that culminated in the the first international agreement to reduce greenhouse gases, um, and some important achievements in foreign policy, although in foreign policy, I think his, his record is much more mixed than in domestic policy, where it's been just a tremendous success. So I try to look at the breadth of his accomplishments and try to analyze the kind of style and the politics that that produced them. And I think you could look at President Obama as having taken some of the best traditions of what used to be liberal republicanism. As the Republican Party has gone further and further to the right, this old tradition of evidence-based, consensus-based, pluralistic governance which brought together people of of different economic backgrounds and people of different racial backgrounds and forged policies that had everyone's interests in mind. And followed the evidence, and came up with, with 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 strong mixes that didn't have a revolutionary purpose, but had an incremental purpose, and 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 created progress and achievements in every single area where he set out to do so. So I think when you look at the whole breadth, as I try to do, I try to tell the story of what to me is not a perfect, but an extraordinarily
1: successful presidency. Thank you for that uh, uh, be- beautifully concise and powerful uh, introduction, Michael. You also have a wonderful book, and you're quite clear that you, too, think the president has a very strong legacy. You say in your introduction, the economic indicators, the stock market is stronger, unemployment rate is down, his signature achievements include the Affordable Care Act, the Supreme Court's upholding of it, legalization of same-sex marriage, and the fall of bin Laden. And then you have chapters uh, on a whole series of issues where you think he has a significant legacy. How would you sum up? President well, th-
3: three. I mean, clearly the book deals with a lot of issues, but I, th- I would argue there are three significant things. When you look at when he took office in t- 2009, um, the country was a mess. The country was horrible economically. Uh, we had lost millions of jobs. We were losing more, many more millions of jobs. The market was at a little less than 8,000. Um, and unemployment was, was approaching 10, 000, 10%, actually went got to 10% I think in his first year in office. And the auto industry, uh, just about everybody had given up on it. Congress had uh, decided that they didn't really want to spend the kind of money they thought that, to save it. In fact, a lot of people thought it could not be saved. But I thought what Obama uh, realized is that he couldn't, to fix the economy, he had to fix the auto industry. And I think that, and that is the stellar piece of, 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 of the economy coming back, I would argue, in that in five years, I, I think the government basically forced the GM and, and Chrysler uh, to file bankruptcy. They had to shed some lines uh, and I think about five, six years later, they, they those two had paid back uh, almost eighty billion dollars. So I mean, that's that's a triumph in a very short period of time. And I don't think anybody you know, While we don't hear much about the economy being better, it is much better. Uh, anybody who has a four hundred one k knows that you know, unless they've had a really a dud as a consultant, they're, they're doing much, they're, they're doing better. I mean, we're you know, we're at eighteen thousand. Uh, I think on the day of the election, it's, and it's gone up from there. The other thing's called me crazy. I really believe that uh, Affordable Care Act, Obam- Obamacare, whatever you want to call it, will survive in many, many ways, largely because there's some components of it that impact all Americans. Um, the ability to keep, to keep your child on a health plan uh, until he or she is 26. Uh, the inability of an insurance company to deny you coverage because of a pre-existing condition. And anybody of a certain age, and I'm of that certain age, has a pre-existing condition. Uh, the fact that insurers can no longer cut you off at a certain amount if you use X amount of dollars. I think, I think those kinds of things. The other, the other issue is, and we'll see how all this plays out politically, a lot of the people who elected are president-elect have Obamacare. I mean, the low-income, middle-income people, uh, working-class white folks are the bulk of the people who, who have Obamacare at this point. The, the other, main, other big piece, I think, is uh, um, energy and environment. I mean, I think he takes a lot of credit for that. But I think, and I can't say I was paying a ton of attention over the last eight years. But you know, you look at the Paris Agreement, we've got 180 companies that agree that, we've, that there is global warming, and we need to work collectively to bring that down. Uh, Uh, So so I think if you look at that, and there are many other things, but those are things that I believe will survive and will continue to excel regardless of who's president.
1: Wonderful. Okay. Uh, Ramesh and David, you've heard Jonathan and Michael uh, talk about uh, President Obama's legacy on the economy, on health care, on climate change, and the environment, on evidence-based reasoning. Uh, Before we talk about whether or not it will be repealed and how it was passed constitutionally, I want to ask you, Ramesh, what your reaction is. And do you agree with Michael and Jonathan that he deserves credit for these significant achievements, or do you think that history will rank him lower?
4: Well, uh, well. first of all, let me thank you for having me, and thank you all for being here, although this does feel a little bit like I'm on trial at the Ministry of Magic. Um, <laughs> this is our great new renovation. It's very I, impressive. I, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm tempted. This is a possibly a apocryphal story of uh, on of Lai in the 1970s being asked what he thought of the French Revolution and saying it's too soon to tell. Um, and uh, I think it is too soon to tell because we don't know what parts of the Obama legacy are going to survive, uh, although we can certainly speculate. I do think that it was. Uh, you ask about sort of whether he should get credit for having achieved a lot. I'll say it was. It has been a very consequential presidency. Um, certainly, the first two years of the Obama presidency was legislatively hyperactive, and then the subsequent six years were administratively hyperactive. Um, uh, but uh, whether you think that is in the plus or the minus column depends on what you think of the actual uh, policy agenda. And as a conservative, I don't approve of much of it.
2: That's a very fair way to put it.
4: Um, well, thank you.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Um, that, uh, it is very well put. Well, let's now focus on the question of how it was passed, which introduces the question of the constitutional dimension. And David, you wrote a very thoughtful piece in National Review essentially saying that the way, the way that um, the, the reforms were passed, circumvented Congress and imposed unilaterally by executive order made them especially vulnerable to be repealed and that liberals will come to regret President Obama's Unilateralism. Here it is. Uh, President Barack Obama's constitutional legacy can be summed up in just five words. The ends justify the means. Frustrated by congressional resistance and either unable or unwilling to compromise, the administration repeatedly circumvented the constitutional lawmaking process to achieve the outcomes it wanted. Uh, So long as it got the right result, the administration didn't seem to care about the process. Tell us more about that critique.
5: Yeah, so essentially what we're talking about are a series of executive orders and sometimes not even actually executive orders. We're talking about memoranda written by heads of agencies. And so, for example, what we um, commonly termed executive amnesty was this deferred action, um, deferred action program where essentially the administration by memorandum said it was going to use prosecutorial discretion uh, to not uh, initiate deportation proceedings or to protect from deportation an entire class. Of individuals numbering in the millions. Um, when it came to uh, Title IX, for example, a statute prohibiting sex discrimination in uh, schools receiving public funding, it promulgated a series of Dear Colleague letters and other guidances that changed education policy at public universities and secondary education all across the United States of America. Now, the thing about these things, when they occurred, there was an Im- immediate outrage, immediate outrage because Neither, they didn't go through the regulatory rulemaking process, which is prescribed by the Administrative Procedures Act, they're just memoranda, they're just letters. And uh, they, of course, didn't go through, if they didn't even go through the rulemaking process, they uh, didn't go through this, the, the process of passing a statute of um, presentment and, and signature. And, and so the, the problem was um, people who are on the receiving end of these orders believed that they were unlawful from their inception and immediately challenged them in court, immediately. And so we reached a point where the Obama administration was taking a number of steps that were subject to immediate legal challenge, where for that legacy to be sure to continue, a sympathetic president had to follow on and either continue the policies as is or initiate statutory processes or rulemaking processes. And when that didn't happen, all of a sudden an awful lot of policy changes, that many progressives were very, very happy about are now completely up for uh, repeal, revocation, without a vote from Congress, uh, merely by writing a new letter or initiating a new rulemaking process. And, and that's one of the reasons why I think, um, uh, as Ramesh was saying, it's too soon to tell, but we may be able to tell pretty darn soon how potent Obama's legal legacy is. Because if the Trump administration and some of those affiliated with the Trump administration fulfill their pledges in the first 100 days, which is to roll back a lot of this rulemaking, to roll back a lot of these letters, the legal environment in the United States of America, particularly in schools, um, particularly involving immigration, will begin to change and change rather quickly. And in many ways, it'll be as if Obama was never even president in that circumstance. Now, that's not to say he won't continue to have an economic legacy. He won't continue to have a foreign policy legacy, uh, but the legal legacy may very well be sparse. In particular, you know, in the Supreme Court, he's gonna actually end his term two terms without having uh, achieved a change in the balance of power in the court. And that's a very significant, lasting non-legacy as well.
1: Thank you for that uh, powerful critique. Michael, give us uh, a sense of the constitutional and historical context. Did President Obama act unusually in resorting to these executive orders to act unilaterally, how have previous presidents who tried to act unilaterally fared, and broadly, what do you think of David's critique that the means by which Obama's legacy was enacted make it vulnerable to
6: repeal? Well, I think the first thing is that the means by which it was enacted undoubtedly are gonna come into play. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We can all agree on that. Um, Another way to think about it is, in order to have an enduring constitutional legacy, you need to have something that endures. Um, and particularly as it relates to the Constitution. So for presidents, typically, that means developing understandings first of presidential power that other presidents buy into, that other presidents follow. You also need to have understandings of congressional power, for example, legislation or legislative achievements that other administrations follow, for example, like the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act that Nixon put into effect. Other presidents have generally served and other Congresses have followed that. You also need understandings of judicial power. Um, and exercise of judicial power, they get followed, they gain traction. So I think in all these different areas, I think we can agree on, they're all in play. We don't know how they're gonna work out, but what's gonna, what we need to do, I think, is watch how other administrations either follow what he's uh, done, uh, adopt similar constitutional visions, or understandings, or adopt different ones. Another element I just want to introduce into all this that we haven't talked about is how an important part of a president's constitutional legacy has to do with his constitutional vision and his rhetoric. Um, This president oftentimes was said, perhaps, not to have used one of his greatest gifts as much as he could have, which is his remarkable oratory um, and his skills to give speeches, but that's another aspect of a president's legacy, the extent to which other presidents will look back on what he said, how he phrased it, how he thought about it in terms of the language and the extent to which that language itself lasts over time.
1: Fascinating. So John, as Michael points out, a lot of President Obama's legacy has to do with his successor. We'd be having a very different conversation if Hillary Clinton had won the election. But what's your response to to David's critique that by acting unilaterally, President Obama made his legacy uniquely vulnerable?
2: Well, I describe uh, a wide array of accomplishments that the administration has. what David is saying is not wrong. It just doesn't apply to almost anything in my book. Um, so Sorry, I think, I think that what that's he's a really de- good argument. I think what he's <laughs> describing is a very, very narrow range of subjects in which he has a lot of attention and a lot of interest. But I don't think is terribly relevant to the, the important parts of the Obama legacy, the economic rescue, healthcare reform, education reform, um, and environmental changes. Um, The environmental piece did, did involve some executive action, but I think you have to understand it. I think the context is actually quite different from what you're saying, and maybe you would even agree. Because in 2007, the Supreme Court ruled that if carbon dioxide is ruled to be a pollutant, the Environmental Protection Agency is required to regulate it as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act, which was passed by Congress in 1971. The Bush administration, which was in office, said, we are going to circumvent this ruling by refusing to open emails from the EPA that declare carbon dioxide to be a pollutant, which they did. They refused to open the emails from the EPA. And so there was no regulation. And then the Obama administration came in and said, we are going to open the emails from the EPA, and we will regulate carbon dioxide as a pollutant, as required by the Supreme Court. And they have um, across a, a wide array of things. But I don't think you could call that an extraordinary usurpation of power. I don't think you could say that they acted in some extraordinary way. If anyone acted in an extraordinary way, you could say it was the Bush administration by getting around that. And I, we could also have a policy discussion of what parts of that will last and what won't. The new president does not think that climate change is real. He thinks that it was invented by China uh, as a hoax to gain competitive economic advantage. So clearly, his policies are going to be very different. But a lot of the economic changes that were set into motion by the administration, by its clean energy investments and its energy, are already in place and essentially irreversible. They're not gonna go back to making less efficient air conditioners. They're not gonna go back to making less efficient cars. Gas is much cheaper than coal. No one's going to pay extra so that they can have a coal-fired electricity plant rather than a gas-fired one. And solar and wind are approaching price competitiveness even without subsidy and should arrive there in m- many parts of the country within a few years. So a lot of these changes that he's brought into bear are just not going to be rolled back. Of course,
1: some of them will. David, I think that's worth a response. Both both Johns claim that it's a narrow range of policies that are vulnerable because of executive action, and also that even some of them, like climate change, uh, will, will survive.
5: Well, the, I think the climate change um, Obama's climate change actions are far more vulnerable than you might think. I mean, the 2007 Supreme Court decision uh, was one that permitted the EPA to act. It didn't necessarily mandate the the EPA act act in any particular way. And then when the EPA did act, in West Virginia versus EPA, the same Supreme Court blocked the implementation of uh, Obama regulations that were critical, for example, to its uh, compliance with various climate change accords. So what ends up happening in, uh, in the world of climate change, in the world of uh, environmental regulation is very much in the up in the air, not just because of President Trump, but also because of the Supreme Court, which has already weighed in uh, on some of these regulations. And, and also, I don't think that we can necessarily say that changes in technology and market changes are some things that we can attribute all the, uh, to President Obama. I mean, uh, low oil prices, for example, um, we have gone through periods and waves of high and low oil prices. I grew up in Kentucky. I used to represent coal companies. I know that's not very cool anymore, but you
4: know, I did it's it. cool again. <laughs> own, it's, okay, I'm sorry. I'm cool again. <laughs> yes. That's fantastic. Yeah. Congratulations.
5: I, I should go back to it. There's yeah. money there now. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, coal, the coal industry has been boom and bust for a long time. I mean, it's been written off as dead and come back again based on what are the price points for other competing forms of energy. And so we've written the obituary for coal many, many times. And so um, some of these things are market forces, some of these things are technological changes. We just can't sort of say here's what happened in the world and we're put in here's what happened in our economy and Obama owns that. He did a lot of things. He he there he his policies were important in many, in many respects. But I don't think that we can look at you know, nat- the, the national and international energy markets and say that's Obama or the development of technology and say that's Obama. That's awful lot of that's capitalism or that's OPEC or that's Russia.
1: M- M- Michael Days, do you want to say another word about... Uh, in the book, you suggest that Obama had to act through executive action because of congressional intransigence, and I think you also suggest that some of the evaluation of him may have been tainted by, tainted by, by racial uh, perceptions. So is he getting a fair shake in history? And-
3: well, I mean, Tom will tell. I mean, I argue that he was an amazing president, particularly given the stresses of being the first African-American president, and the disrespect he received or got from day one, being, the, I would argue, being the first African-American president. Uh, and the thing that I came away from doing, working on this book his ama- was that he's amazingly r- resilient. Okay. I mean, a, a lot of other people would have just crumbled <laughs> halfway through at least the, the, the second term, because there was nothing getting done. Congress had made it very, very clear they were not going to cooperate with him. Now they would pro- he was the Democrat, so that, that had a lot to do with it, but uh, I do feel that a lot of, a lot of what happened to him ha- was because of, he's an African-American, and, and, and someone might want to counter that, but you know, the, 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 the beyond anecdotally, it just seems that's the case
5: to me. I, I will say he's the only popular politician left in the United States right now, though. Yes. <laughs> if, you, if you look at the polls, he's the last one standing. And
1: today today he said that Michelle would not run for office, so she's <laughs> more popular than he is in... So now, Ramesh, let's, you're being statesmanlike, and it's too soon to tell, but take us forward. And the next 100 days, what of the legacy will survive and what will be repealed?
4: Well, I mean, I think that the things that are easiest to repeal are the things that um, uh, David French was talking about uh, in terms of executive orders and letters and memoranda that can be withdrawn or rescinded. Um, the major legislation, on the other hand, that passed in the first two years of his presidency is going to be very different. I don't think that Dodd-Frank, in its ma- the, the financial regulation legislation, is going to um, be going anywhere. Some of the regulations uh, may be enforced in different ways, and of course, the uh, the financial consumer financial protection bureau, the courts have ruled that it has to be restructured. Um, but that, the basic guts of that law, I think, are gonna stay in place. Obamacare is in question right now. Uh, I think that the fundamental, the, what's fundamentally protecting Obamacare right now is not so much that there are popular elements of it, although there are, and not so much that there are constituencies for parts of it. Uh, it's that Republicans don't have 60 votes in the Senate. And they don't have a way to really go after large parts of that legislation without those 60 votes. Um, I would just, if I could tack on something to, uh, to what's been discussed. I do think that it is a, uh, it has been an administration that pushed the limits. Um, and we see that not only in its record of executive actions, for example, making immigration actions that every U.S. president, up to and including Obama himself, said exceeded the legitimate authority of a U.S. president. You also see it in the fact that it's got a record number of unanimous decisions by the Supreme Court against its legal positions. We've got 44 cases in which there were nine zip decisions against this administration, including Democratic appointees, including Obama's own appointees. This is not just a figment of conservative imagination.
1: Just because uh, it's obviously a relevant question, might the same Supreme Court uh, strike down executive excesses by the president-elect?
4: It, it, we don't know what he's going to do. It's so hard to, it's hard to predict what he's going to tweet on any given night.
1: But well, we so uh, look forward to as it. Long as, it <laughs> as long as it relates to the Constitution, we're happy about it the Constitution I, but
4: I I would not assume that the Republican appointees of the Supreme Court are necessarily going to bless every single thing that President-elect Trump did. The Republican appointees of the Supreme Court broke with the George W. Bush administration on some significant law of war issues, for example. Uh, and I suspect that they were politically closer to Bush than they consider themselves to be to this president-elect.
1: Michael, can you talk about President Obama's judicial legacy? He had two appointment appointees to the Supreme Court who were quite different. Uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, in some of her very powerful dissents, uh, seems to take a more uh, progressive uh, position than uh, Justice Elena Kagan. So, and yet Obama had come in as a constitutional law professor defending a limited role for the courts, saying liberals had relied too much on the courts to fight their policy battles. What was President Obama's constitutional vision and did he achieve it?
6: I, I think it's going to, here's, I'll hazard a guess. I think it, uh, in large part, I think he did achieve it. Um, and let me sort of give you a couple of examples of how that's so. Um, so, if we take a step back from sort of thinking about, okay, the, the different policy debates for and against, Here's one way in which we can see it uh, it gains traction and is likely to endure. The very basis on which the Affordable Care Act individual mandate was upheld is likely to endure. That understanding of taxing power, however controversial it was, is likely to endure. And that happened on his watch. Um, In addition, he brought the numbers of women to a historic high on the Supreme Court. He appointed the first Hispanic to the United States Supreme Court. Those things are not going away. Those are all part of an enduring legacy. And at the same time, if I can just sort of segue into a couple of the other points that were made, sort of picking up on presidential leadership style, one is um, think about, well, how will a president in the future react to congressional intransigence? Will they take unilateral action? If they do, they take a page from President Obama. So if we think short term, maybe th- some things will come, go, and some things will come. But if for other presidents say, you know, I think what President Obama did there is something I will follow. That's a, that's a move that I get, it's a void I will occupy, then his legacy to some extent endures. And at the same time, um, the style with which he did it, never angry, always, I think, above the fray, is another way that may influence how other presidents act. J- J- <laughs> Take the long view. <laughs>
1: J- John, Jade, can, what is the, what was Obama's political philosophy within the history of the debates about presidential power. You think of Bill Clinton, the era of big government is over, sort of post-Reagan. Um, uh, there's a, you know, the long debate between Hamiltonians and Jeffersonians in the Democratic Party. And now, uh, Democrats are rediscovering the virtue of Jefferson now that Republicans hold all three branches of government and are saying that only in the states can they actually achieve progressive uh, results moving forward. But where in that debate is Obama situated? You know, was he a Hamiltonian, a Jeffersonian? What was his vision of federal power? How you remember
2: I think he's a Hamiltonian. Um, and I think if you look back at the 19th century, one of the arguments I've made is that the debates we had in the 19th century are much more familiar to us now than the debates we had in the 20th century. The 20th century is very unusual, very foreign. Um, the debates of the 20th century seemed like they're hundreds and hundreds of years away, and if you read about what was happening in the 19th century, they were very, very familiar. You had um, a a debate between one philosophy of um, constitutionalism that had its strongest base of support in the White South and which had deep fear of overarching central government and that if this government did anything, even if those things were about infrastructure um, or other policies, that it would uh, give the government too much power to upset the racial balance um, and especially in the South. Um, and then you had a socially liberal movement based in the Northeast, um, which favored more activist government in the economy. Uh, and I think if you actually look back at, at those two schools, it, it, it's exactly what we have now. And that all got scrambled in the 20th century um, because the South was attached to the party that ended up moving left. Um, and then, the, and the Republican Party, which was the, which was the liberal Ham- Hamiltonian um, party, the, the descendants of the Whigs, um, moved to the right. So in the 20th century, the parties were crossing the streams and everything was confused. And all these habits of politics that we have are left over from this very strange period when the parties were moving past each other and intermingling for a long period of time. And now we're basically back to these warring camps that are very familiar in the 19th century. Century, um, but of course, there's some real downsides to that because you, if you remember what happened in the middle of the nineteenth century, um, it often was not so easy to get along, and, and these and these and these disputes were settled um, quite violently. Not only during the Civil War, but after the Civil War, when when the when the when the Reconstruction vision uh, of the of the Lincoln Republicans, the to to Lincoln, were were violently overthrown throughout the South. So. Um, in some ways, this is a, a scary prospect, but that's where we were, and that's where I think we're going.
1: Absolutely fascinating. Ramesh, you've written very powerfully about the philosophical history of the Republican Party and urged it to be you know, more attentive to the needs of the working class, but what is your response to John's claim that we're recapitulating 19th century debates between small government agrarians and interventionist Hamiltonians, and how would you situate Obama in that debate? Uh,
4: well, first, it just strikes me that on infrastructure, on tariffs, and even his involvement in uh, uh, adulterous affairs that end up in the tabloids, Trump does resemble Hamilton (laughs) in some respect.
1: I'm allowed to laugh at
4: I do think that the the Republican Party is a little bit less Southern, uh, a little bit less small government oriented now than it used to be thanks to Trump. I mean, I think it, it, it is a, a little bit more of a strong government party, or at least it has a stronger, strong government wing, which helps explain how it was able to break through in some of these industrial Midwest states, and including this one. Um, so I don't know if it's, if it, if it, I, I think the Republican Party is in such a period of flux right now and its definition is up for grabs. That, so it's a little bit hard to say that. I know I'm reverting to my same too soon to tell um, uh, uh, answer from earlier. It may be because I spent so much of 2015 predicting that Trump would not be the nominee, <laughs> but I am, uh, I am really pulling back um, from making any predictions. Uh, on the other hand, it's certainly true that Trump is kind of a thin layer on top of the Republican Party uh, and that the congressional Republican Party remains philosophically kind of movement conservative oriented and, and more small government oriented. Obama, I do think, um, def- I-, I would definitely consider him more in the Hamiltonian Um, school of thought than uh, than the Jeffersonian one.
1: I think this is such an interesting thread that David if you could chime in uh, historically and philosophically where does Obama and current Republicans fit in?
5: Well you know I think one thing we definitely know, we don't even have to predict anything about this, is we learned in this presidential cycle that the Republican base is far less ideological than people thought. I mean we, we went through election cycle after election cycle where the biggest argument was who's the rhino, who's the squish? You know, and so you're just going through a list of a hundred conservative policy points. And if somebody deviated on number 100 in the list, well, then they're a loser and they're a weakling and they're a coward. And then here comes Donald Trump and he deviates on 95 of the 100. And then all of the same people who are leading the rhino patrols looking for any trace of ideological inconsistency are on the Trump train chugging down the track. And, it was whiplash, but you know, if you know anything, and, and uh, I thought it was insightful to bring up the South because if you know anything about Southern political history, you know that it's a populist place. Um, Donald Trump and Huey Long would recognize each other, um, and and you know, I was thinking in the middle of this uh, election cycle that you know, it, it was not that long ago. I believe it was 2002. I live in in Columbia, Tennessee. It may be known to you all as the mule capital of the world. Um, we, we have more mules per capita than any community in the United States. Don't, don't Google that, I just, I'm not quite sure it's true. But <laughs> <laughs> we claim it. We have true a enough. mule day festival, that okay. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, but, so in 2002, 2003, Tennessee has a, a Democratic governor, a Democratic house, and a Democratic Senate. In 2016, Tennessee has a Republican House, a um, a supermajority House, supermajority Senate, and a Republican governor. And and the Democratic Party is just broken into a million pieces. The people did not change. It's not like Tennessee dramatically culturally changed in that dozen year span of time. It was the same people. And so these were people who grew up on sort of a meat and potatoes populism with some uh, Tea Party ideological sort of syrup on top. And so, you know, when Donald Trump came to town with this sort of nationalist message, populist message, it resonated. I I had a, I I bought a Toyota Tundra. Every writer needs a Toyota Tundra, by the way. It's a phenomenal big pickup truck to carry all your words. And uh, (laughs) my uh, my 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 car salesman uh, was asking me what I did, and I said I'm a writer. And there's not many writers buying Tundras in Columbia. And he and he said, Well, what do you write? And I said politics. And he said, Can I Google you? And I said. Yes, but do you like Donald Trump? And he goes, well, heck yeah, I like Donald Trump. I said, don't, don't Google me. Uh, but I, I asked him, I said, why do you like Trump? And this is an answer that's very typical of my friends and neighbors. I live in a precinct that went 72% for Trump. And he said, Donald Trump loves America and he kicks ass. And I thought, man, that is the rural man's version of hope and change right there. And if you're communicating a message that simple and that basic that I'm, I love this country and I will fight for you, the ideology, all these ideological battles that we had kind of slid away and it left a lot of us who'd been fighting those things going, where are my troops at? Uh, it turns out that we, we weren't as conservative as we thought.
1: Wow. And I think it's worth, to, for, the, for the audience, noting that uh, David French and Ramesh Pnuru uh, write for National Review of very distinguished uh, conservative publication, our partner in this event, but but had very strong critiques of Donald Trump on constitutional other grounds during the campaign. Uh, uh, Michael Days, this loves America and kicks ass. What what there are some there's the scholars Joey uh, Fishkin and, and Forbath argue that the Democrats used to be the party of economic populism, starting with Jefferson and Jackson and uh, Louis Brandeis and Woodrow Wilson and FDR. But in the 60s, they became more interested in equality for women and minorities and less focused on the working class. And we're seeing the results of that in this election. What do you make of that critique?
3: You know, I'm just a, 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 a tabloid editor from Philadelphia, so I'm not a historian. <laughs> but no, no, no. You know, I'm, starting, I'm starting to wonder if, if we're starting to look at sort of the, the, the color of personality that, that, right. that's driving these elections more so than party affiliation. You know, we're just saying that uh, Obama has sort of come back in his popularity, is at what I think it was 57% the other day. But it doesn't translate. It doesn't translate to the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll, we'll, see. we'll see how it plays out for President-elect Trump. But I, mean, I think that's just a strong personality with a message a variation on hope and change uh, uh, that resonated with a lot of people with a lot of people who, who feel I guess who feel left behind or they, were they or they I mean that whole issue of um, make America great again you know I you know I think people of color interpret that one way maybe other people just saw it as we want America to be like it was in 1950 can, and maybe, can I, maybe it's not about race I wanted to j- jump in on, t- on top of that because I actually think that's a very
2: common description of of Obama that you're articulating, right? But as I try to make the point in my book, it's a hundred percent wrong this is This is a president who passed some of the most important subsidies to the working class and struggling economic people of any president in decades and decades and decades. He cut taxes permanently on low-income workers and raised them on the rich. He regulated Wall Street and turned Wall Street, which had supported him in his reelection, into a bitter enemy that overwhelmingly financed his opposition. The auto bailout saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jobs of auto workers and suppliers throughout the Midwest. It saved the Midwest from a m- massive depression. Uh, the people who are benefiting from the Affordable Care Act are people of, moder- of modest means. So it's one of the most effective and, and, and energetic presidencies in terms of helping people in the working class that we've had since at least Johnson, um, and you could even argue Roosevelt. So I agree that the perception of the president has been racialized, but I would argue that that racialized perception has erased the common understanding of what this president has done of, for working-class people of, of, of all identities, um, which is I think quite unfortunate.
3: No
1: argument for me on that one. <laughs> Powerfully stated, Mr. So, Michael.
4: So right now it seems to me looking at the the intra-democratic debate about what went wrong in the Obama years culminating in this election and where to go from here it seems to me and again as an outsider might be oversimplifying you've got people who are saying we've gone too far in the direction of identity politics and we need to have a more kind of bread and butter pro working class message that, that brings in working class whites and maybe even a more left wing economic message. I think you're hearing that from Bernie Sanders. You're hearing that from Elizabeth Warren. But what I don't think you're hearing, what I think really does matter and which I think really was a failing of, this, of the Obama administration, was that they're not paying attention or, or taking seriously the idea that these white voters without college degrees also have a distinctive set of values, not all of which are contemptible, that deserve some kind of sympathetic outreach of a kind that previous Democrats, the FDR, Lyndon Johnson, and even Bill Clinton Democrats, not ancient history, uh, they, would, they would try to meet them part way on issues where they thought that they could find some common ground. And I think you've seen a lot less of that. On immigration, for example, which I think you know, I keep coming back to, but I think was a really important issue in this election. The Hillary Clinton positions of 2006 are no longer present in the Democratic Party right now, and I think that that is the kind of thing that just rubs a lot of these voters, some of whom voted for Obama, the wrong way. And it created a thin coalition that was incapable, that was constantly at a structural disadvantage in House and Senate elections, and if you ever lost the presidency, Caused you to be shut out of power altogether.
1: Great. Okay, Michael, your your some your some your 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 thoughts on uh, what you've heard historically about the, whether or not the Democrats have abandoned the working class, uh, how the uh, parties have shifted, and how Obama uh, shifted them. And, and then we'll take questions from the
6: audience. In 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can have a little no, more than that. 45. Yeah. Oh, um, I actually don't d- disagree with much of what has been said. And I think one of the themes here, so again taking a step back, is that for all the good that I think President Obama did, and I actually do think he achieved a lot of good, building party wasn't one of them, You know, fortifying the party. And I say that, uh, maybe like David, as somebody who actually currently lives in the South. I'm from North Carolina, which is ground zero, where the elections are not over, by the way. Um, and so. Um, but party, I think, wasn't as definitive of much of what happened. And I think to some extent what President Obama was not able to do, and maybe didn't do as well as he should have, was build a strong party that survived after him. And that party to be strong had to survive, not just at the national level, but had to survive at the local and state level. And that's where it's hurting, I think, uh, the most. It's, uh, it's crumbling to some extent. And I think the second thing that's related to all that is, has to do with the message he might have achieved all that for the working class but I'm not sure the message got delivered um, and that's uh, that, that's a problem to some extent with rhetoric it's a problem to some extent with mastering social media uh, it's a, uh, it's a problem to some extent with how you use the bully pulpit and in terms of trying to deliver all that to the electorate um, and I think uh, to, to to a large extent but not Completely, um, it, it's 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 not a story of success. Um, and I think the last thing is maybe to come back to the Hamilton Jefferson um, sort of uh, differences. Um, of course, we're, uh, you can see that it's Hamiltonian, even to the point where Obama likes Hamilton, <laughs> and the current president elect doesn't. Um, and although uh, according to Rush in the book, right, he is the president elect right. is a Hamiltonian. Yeah, yeah, that may be the irony, uh, but but that also may be. Also a reflection of what david and others are saying it's it's less about a neat, coherent ideology as is, is I think about connecting with voters uh, in a way um, that I think um, to some extent this administration lost sight of lost a handle on, and I think that unfortunately is part of its legacy Great well, we have the, the questions
1: are hot off the presses, and without even having a chance to decipher them with my constitutional reading glasses i'm going to uh, just uh, read one, which is, what role do you think economic insecurity played in this year's election? This is related to this theme we've been talking about, but uh, John. Well, um, when Mitt Romney ran for uh,
2: President Obama's job in 2012, he said he would get unemployment down below 6% by the end of his term. It's below 5% now Um, and has been for most of the year. Um, Incomes have been rising relatively sharply uh, in the last year. Uh, you had a long overhang from the Great Recession, but um, that didn't stop President Obama from being reelected in 2012 and the economy, like I said, is much better now. So I think that has to rank below other factors. Um, to, to follow up on, on your, your point, Michael, um, I w- and I don't think you meant to do this, but I think you almost implicitly presented Obama as someone who was repudiated, repudiated by the electorate um, or has lost touch, but in fact, uh, as David said, he's the most popular, in fact, the only popular politician in America. He's at 57%. He, he won re-election. He won election by sweeping margins. So it didn't translate to Hillary Clinton, who, who was personally distrusted by large elements of her own party and the electorate in ways that aren't necessarily connected to anything President Obama did. Um, so, you know, I think you had a, the problem is that people who approved of Obama didn't vote for Hillary Clinton in large enough percentages, and that was the difference. But
4: I guess just, you know, partly there's a counterfactual question here. It's just my gut sense is if you had not had a situation where you had relative wage stagnation in the middle of the income scale for the last 15 years, if you had had a recovery where the average growth rate was 3% per year, I do not believe that Donald Trump would have won the Republican nomination or the presidency.
3: I think I saw a. a, survey just this week that said that many Americans and most Americans felt acknowledged that the economy is better, but for them and their own households, they felt like it wasn't any better. So I think people, when they're looking at it personally, uh, we've got a country now where people don't have pensions, but they don't feel like their jobs could last through a career.
5: And I think that, that that really brings about the discomfort and uncertainty in their lives. You know, I think that there's never, if you look at the numbers, there's never been a better time to be upper middle class. Uh, The ranks of the upper middle class are growing. Incomes of upper middle class are growing. Until recently, the middle class was stagnant or losing ground. Um, Poverty was growing more sticky in the sense that if you were born in poverty, your ability to escape it for many reasons was more limited than in years past. And so what, what we were beginning to see was a world in which the huge sections of upper middle class America were doing just fine. And, and we're not just doing just fine economically, but also doing just fine socially and culturally. Getting married, staying married, getting in school, finishing school, all of these markers of stability that occur in a culture. Not that, being
4: addicted to opiates. Not being
5: addicted to opiates, not being alcoholic, alcoholics. All of these things are in the upper middle class, which is the disproportionately ruling class of the United States of America. But if you go beyond, it's not just economic insecurity in middle class and working class America. It is enormous amounts of family disintegration, enormous amounts of, and and related to that and connected with that, enormous amounts of drug addiction, suicide, uh, alcohol dependence. Uh, You know, you go into my county, which is, uh, has a lower than average, or lower than average income, higher than average unemployment, lots of people on disability, and you get outside that class of doctors, lawyers, and, and state employees, and it's a lot of people, it's not that they can't make ends meet, they do. It's that life is just rough and it is hard. And, and that's something that I think that, you know, Hillary Clinton, she may have tried to connect with that. She didn't connect with that. Donald Trump connected with that, which is ironic because he's a billionaire that I, you know, believe only really mainly thinks about himself. But, um, you know, but he connected with that. And, and I well, hope that... Or at least with
4: whites living in that Right, situation. right.
5: Well, yeah, yeah. I was talking about my, my community. And um, I hope that he's able to sort of follow through some with some real commitment, but we'll see.
1: Well, that relates to this next question, which, Michael, you can jump in on. We have two questions that are related, essentially. What will the Trump voter say and do when he cannot deliver on his promises? And you know, will the appointees by Trump to his next administration pointing so heavily toward big business basically turn off the people who elected him.
6: Well, I can't speak to the politics of whether to turn off the people who elected him, but I, can, I think it's a safe, well, to begin with, making any prediction is just ridiculous. <laughs> um, uh, so, so I've learned that much. Having learned that much, I'm going to ahead and make a prediction. Um, uh, which is, I think if he, um, I, I think the, the voters will be happy to abandon Donald Trump if he doesn't deliver on the things that they want, would have liked for him to deliver. I think that, um, uh, and that's partly because um, I think party has, to go back to Jonathan's point, which I, I do take, um, I, I think party w- was, the, was the weakness. I don't think Obama's popularity will actually serve him well in terms of a legacy. Um, but it didn't translate into a kind of party structure that would help to elect people, for example, to the Senate and other kind of places which, where you needed the Democrats to be in order to provide a kind of um, institutional and structural support for some of his policies to endure. But I think in terms of his popularity, I think we'll find out in the long run that that actually is going to serve him well. Uh, we have
1: two questions basically about the Supreme Court. You know, uh, What do you think of Republicans in Congress refusing to carry out their constitutional function of providing advice and consent? Can Obama make a recess appointment? Uh, uh, Ramesh, any, just too bad luck for Merrick Garland? Or is there anything else to say?
4: there's there's no constitutional command that the Senate has to take up a nomination, has to have committee hearings. Um, I would have preferred to have a vote and uh, and vote him down myself, Um, but, you know, it's just the Constitution allows the Congress not to act on things. In fact, that's the way most presidential proposals die. Um, What's unusual, of course, is that it happened this time with the Supreme Court nomination. As for the recess appointment, I'm not really detecting a great deal of interest from the administration uh, in doing that, partly because it would, uh, it just seems like a, a kind of gesture at this point.
1: We're almost out of time. These, these last questions are related. And uh, it, uh, the question is, given the uniqueness and special abilities of Barack Obama, what opportunities were missed? John Shade. Chib-
2: Well, I wrote a column in New York arguing that he should become the leader of the opposition. That he's in a position we have not seen um, in modern history, which is a a popular, living, (laughs) non-disgraced ex-president who's watching a successor attempt to dismantle his legacy. Um, that, that simply has not happened um, and he's dramatically more popular than, than the man who's succeeding him So he has no reason to stand by and, and let him do that without without taking any any action and I, and I, I hope he will I think it's
1: worth uh, uh, Michael Day's missed opportunities
3: You know I would say that And I guess I come back to race I would say that I wish he had talked more or brought people together more to talk about America and Americans of various stripes because he had, he had the portfolio for that, you know, mother, white woman, father, African man, and lived in a, in a variety of worlds, you know, lived internationally. Um, so I wish he had been more comfortable not upsetting people, but just talking talk about the experience and the experience of America. He did it right here, actually, what was that? The race speech. The race speech, and I just wish there had been more of that, because in a lot of ways I feel, it, 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 not I feel, but it, 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 apparently America's more divided Uh, and that, personally, I think that explains Donald Trump, emerges, so I wish that had happened.
1: Closing statements of sorts, but Ramesh missed opportunities.
4: Well, uh, it's sort of implicit in what I said earlier. I think that the Obama administration, like a lot of liberals and Democrats, believed there was a coalition of the ascendant um, that they could ride to ever-increasing power uh, over the years, and stopped looking beyond that coalition And I think both parties have made decisions that have um, further polarized this country, but that was the one the Democrats made that has, I think, blown up in their face because the ascendant coalition hasn't ascended at quite the speed it was supposed to. Michael Garrett. Well,
6: uh, uh, as a constitutional law professor and somebody who grew up in Alabama and currently lives in uh, North Carolina, I want to underscore what Michael said. So I'll end on the point about race. I don't think we can overstate the significance of what Barack Obama has done to advance um, the understanding of race, to advance race relations. Um, The grace with which he was president, I think will only play better and better over time. Um, And I think, to really underscore that, think about the world in which our children and grandchildren have grown up in. It's a world in which I, you know, I grew up Jewish in Alabama in the 1960s, I never imagined there'd be an African American president. Um, but there was, and he was elected twice by a commanding number of votes. And I think that's going to be a remarkable legacy um, that he will have throughout the history of time.
1: David, do you have the last word? You can talk about missed opportunities, but if
6: you also want to
1: uh, make a, you know, a, 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 a case for his uh, legacy from your perspective, uh, you know, what would it be?
5: Well, I would say he would, even if in a moment of honesty, say he had missed opportunities, mainly related to the fact that he didn't know that he was gonna have his congressional majorities for such a short amount of time. Uh, If he knew going in that he could only count on two years, I would guarantee you with that filibuster-proof majority that he had, at least for a little while, with that big house majority that he had, there would be a lot more enduring statutory changes that the Republicans, any president, would be hard pressed to undo. So I think if you put him on truth serum, he'd probably say that. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, look, I, I, I want to say this just sort of as a personal matter on the, on the race issue. On the, on the one side, I don't think race relations are better than they were when he came into office, and it's deeply painful to see that. At the same time, there is a legacy of his election as the first African-American president that is deeply and irrevocably meaningful and positive. Um, And and that's the complexity of this country. And so what will it mean over time? Uh, You know, as with so many things in our history, there's gonna be a mixture of good and bad, but I I do grieve for where race relations are right now. I grieve for that, Um, but at the same time, I remember when Obama was elected in in 08, I opposed him. i just come back from Iraq and I was worried that he was gonna squander our gains in Iraq and he did. Um, But then, uh, you know, Thomas Friedman wrote a column that said, well, maybe the Civil War is finally over. And I thought, maybe that's right. And now I'm thinking, maybe I'm not so sure about that.
1: Superb discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our panelists.
0: Today's show was engineered by David Stotz and Kevin Kilborn and edited by Jason Gregory. It was produced by yours truly. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at We want to know what you think of the podcast. Please email us anytime at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Nkandru Yanachi.